And so competing for volunteer army has been a challenge since uh, 72. And uh, in today's world, young adults don't spend a life with a company. You know, the company man, company woman is kind of gone, and it went away really about 20 years ago. And so uh, the Army uh, can keep up with that or, you know, be bypassed. And many of these uh, skills really lend themselves much better to the reserve and guard than they do the active component, right? I mean, I could have a fellow who's, or a young lady working over at IBM, who is working cyber issues at IBM in support of some bank somewhere. And when they're not doing that, they're working for us. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And for this episode, I got to sit down and have a conversation with Dr. Casey Wardinsky, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. His office has a pretty remarkably wide portfolio, and the work they do touches the careers and lives of soldiers, Army civilian employees, families, and more. It's really, really important stuff that they work on. And this was a fantastic opportunity to hear directly from the source about some pretty major things the Army is doing to contribute to building a force that is optimized to both compete on the modern battlefield and accept and embrace some of the changes that have been affecting workforces in the private sector for years and even decades. Before we get to that conversation, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're releasing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Casey Wardinsky. Sir, thank you very much for sitting down and, and uh, having a conversation uh, with us for the Modern War Institute podcast today. Great. Well, I'm pleased to be here. So you are the Assistant Secretary for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Uh, can you give kind of a quick overview of what that means? Sure. Uh, well, it's a total Army sort of focused position. So uh, I have purview over all things people, uh, whether it's active component, uh, reserve component, National Guard or civilians, and in some cases also contractors with regard to like access to installations and uh, the such. Uh, it goes from everything from pay uh, to promotion to uh, how we get people, to how we keep them, how we employ them, how we develop them, um, mobilization policy. Uh, it reaches over into the chaplain's world. I have oversight of the chaplains, all the medical folks. Uh, I have oversight over G357 for training and mobilization. Uh, G1 for all things people. And uh, so it's a pretty comprehensive area. I also have purview over um, development of the program, uh, which is a five-year plan of how we'll allocate resources in the world of training and in the world of manpower. And I think those two combined are somewhere around $100 billion. And in those, I work with the commander of the Forces Command and the commander of TRADOC. Wow. So it is, like you said, an expansive portfolio. Um, in a lot of ways, I think people might be surprised that that all of that is kind of leads to, to all those paths leads, lead right. to this office. Um, but in a lot of ways, also, you can't really deal with any of those individually because they have impacts on one another. Sure. And this is sort of the intersection of the military and civilian control. Uh, so the secretariat, um, ultimately the secretary, is the, the leader for the Army. Uh, the rest of us here, whether Army staff or uh, secretariat staff, support him and his efforts. Uh, and so he delegates to each of his assistant secretaries, whether it's civil works or acquisition technology or manpower reserve affairs, a uh, piece of his portfolio to look after closely and act in his stead uh, in that area. 
and to advise him. Uh, my principal advisor would be the Army G1, who's the chief uh, general officer who looks after personnel for the Army. Uh, that general, uh, General Siemens, also advises the chief of staff on personnel matters, so he has two roles. He advises me and he advises the chief. Uh, the chief is the principal military advisor to the secretary. Uh, so there's a lot of internesting and intertwining of relationships. Sure. Uh, but they all intersect at the intersection of uh, the military and civilian control of the military, which, is, of course, is an important aspect of the way our country operates. Sure. So we are in an era, I think, that would be um, accurately characterized as one of modernization or reform. These are the buzzwords that we're talking about, and, and they're more than buzzwords. Um, within not only ar the Army, but the, the Defense Department as a whole. What does that mean from a manpower perspective? Uh, well, I think it's uh, important from a multiple uh, set of directions. One is uh, opportunity. Uh, reform means you've got an idea that you'd like to change the way you're doing business. Um, that creates an opportunity to do that. Uh, many of the things you see today that we're working on, uh, we've been working on since 1998. Uh, and uh, the war obviously absumed uh, a lot of uh, cycles for the Army, uh, and it also created a lot of pressure on the Army that made these changes necessary. Uh, uh, so reform is important. Uh, modernization is also important because it implies uh, we're going somewhere different than where we've been before, uh, and it'll be more advanced. Uh, usually we think of the hardware when we think of modernization, uh, but having been in the people business this long, I really think of people first, uh, because uh, the Army, the, the equipment is attached to people. The people aren't attached to equipment. And the people will always be our most adaptive uh, and resourceful resource, uh, and they always have been. Uh, the machines will do what they're allowed to do by physics, uh, and where they don't uh, extend themselves into a domain we hadn't anticipated being in, uh, the people will carry the day, and they always have and they always will. And so uh, modernizing the Army, to me, uh, in this domain means really uh, continuing the great tradition we've had of getting great Americans to volunteer to be in the Army, and to serve, uh, you know, as long as they can, hopefully careers, uh, but allowing them to do so in a more modern fashion that's in keeping with what's going on in the rest of the world. So uh, I would say the Army's uh, probably incubator might have been World War I, uh, certainly no later than World War II, and uh, most of the folks that were there in those days were drafted. Uh, they were folks who enjoyed the bounty our country provides, uh, what civil life affords, uh, and leaving that does involve some, some privation, right, and some sacrifice. And so to do it for a war, the country called on them through the draft and they came. Uh, and that kind of uh, conditioned the Army to think of, you know, if we ask them, they will come. Uh, well, a volunteer army is a different business. Uh, you really do have to ask. Uh, it's not just a matter of sending a piece of mail out saying, come on and show up, right? Sure. And so competing for a volunteer army has been a challenge since 72. Uh, and uh, that means you have to be relevant at all times, relevant to young people as this is a worthwhile undertaking. It's a good use of your, you know, the time you have here on earth. Uh, it'll be uh, wholesome for your family and rewarding. Um, and, you know, you can have a dog and you can have a car and all those things young folks worry about. And, and you can have a career. And as you get older, you start seeing some of the, the great benefits we have and how important those are. But usually those come, that visibility comes with kids. Uh, or a spouse, right? And you start valuing things like health care and predictability, um, all that, and uh, the community of the military. Uh, it's a very wholesome group of people to work with. By and large, you, you have a high set expectations of how you'll be treated and how they'll treat you. Uh, you may not always find that outside the military. And uh, having been in and out, uh, I can tell you those are great aspects of the military you don't often find elsewhere. Uh, 
And so we have to be uh, modernizing to, to approach this issue. And uh, in today's world, um, young adults don't spend a life with a company. You know, the company man, company woman is kind of gone, and sure. it went away really about 20 years ago. And now what they're looking for is not lifetime employment, but lifetime employability. Uh, they expect a, a value exchange with their employer. They expect to provide, you know, good value to their employer in terms of the work they do, but they also expect a growth opportunity so that they remain employable, right? And they, they can grow at the firm or elsewhere. And firms have adapted to that, and, um, the, and you know, they, they have a big effort to manage talent, uh, to outplace and in-place talent and so forth. And so uh, the Army uh, can keep up with that or, you know, be bypassed. Being bypassed probably isn't a great solution. And, in fact, uh, keeping up and getting ahead of it is a much better solution because it un and unlocks what's best here, and that's what's in America, our, our folks. And if we just know what they're passionate about, what they're good at, you know, maybe what they're not as good at, uh, we're going to do a much better job of putting them where they can thrive and do their best work for America. Uh, I have several mm -hmm. follow-up questions uh, mm -hmm. based on that. The first one, you, you said it was – you know, you talked about this being a people first sort of institution. Um, your comments, I think, echoed those of General McConville at AUSA um, when he specifically said, we don't man equipment, we equip soldiers. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and, and, and I wish we had been recording there, so I'm going to ask you now. Um, that's kind of remarkable that, you know, this emphasis on on getting the best, getting the right people, this emphasis on quality soldiers as opposed to quantity. We look at it in retrospect and we say that's how we won the Cold War because we had better soldiers even if the other side had more of them. Um, can you can you kind of talk about when that shift happened? Yeah, I think it was right around the uh, 1990s, uh, probably before the first Gulf War it was already happening, and we didn't detect it. Uh, we went through the drawdown after that war, uh, and that masked uh, what was happening on, in the economy and what was happening around the Army. Uh, but by 1997, 1998, it was very apparent that uh, something had changed, and we could see it in continuation rates of our officers and uh, turnover of our, our, our folks, right? Um, and uh, we were uh, really beginning to drill into those questions. Uh, by 2001, uh, we thought we had a set of solutions to address what was becoming a problem in terms of retention. And uh, General Maud, who was our G1 at that time, uh, was ready to, to take that to the next step in terms of implementation. And, of course, his life was cut short um, you know, by an act of terrorism uh, just down the hall here. And uh, that, that delayed our efforts by about four years. And uh, by 2004, General Hagaback had come back from uh, the 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan. He had seen on the battlefield the importance of the people piece of this equation. He became the G1. Uh, he quickly gathered the information he needed to make a decision. He carried forward the ideas of what we now call the Career Satisfaction Program. Um, he took those to General Schoomaker uh, and Dr. Harvey, who was the secretary at that time. Uh, decisions were made by those folks, and we implemented in 2004, had a full-up program running by 2006. That program, the Branch for Service, Post for Service, and Grad School for Service, uh, we just had a, uh, um, an analysis done of those, and. Uh, those generated for the United States about 14,000 officers retained, uh, about $2.3 billion in avoided cost of replacing those officers and untold cost in terms of, you know, the expertise that would have walked out the door. Um, and they positioned us to be successful today and carried us through the war, which uh, was becoming a, a close-run thing about 2007. And uh, one of the things that came out of that was um, the graduate school option. We were going to be sending a lot of officers off to different experiences, 
uh, ones in which they had the right to pick their grad school and to pick their program. That was new. It used to be uh, you had to go where the Army asked you to go and take the courses we asked you to take or, you know, it wasn't going to be an option for you. Uh, this was much different. And so if we were going to let officers uh, pick what they wanted to study and go where they wanted to study, uh, that was going to be a, a big pivot point. And we were going to learn a lot about what, what are they excited about, what are their interests, and we're going to want to know what are they bringing back to the Army at mid-career uh, so we can put it to good use. And that was really the birth point in 2006, March 2006, in General Hagenbach's office down the hall of the notion of talent management. And uh, at that point, there was a discussion about competence, um, which is certainly a foundational requirement, right? I mean, we want competence, uh, but it's sort of a baseline as well. And, you know, when you think about the military, I, I put it in the field of professions, uh, clergy, medicine, the law, uh, and maybe one or two others. They all sort of share a common sense of attributes. One is they have special trust and confidence, right? Somebody cutting into you, that's a lot of trust. <laughs> Uh, somebody dealing with your spiritual life, that's a lot of trust. Uh, they all have something to do with life, right? Our spiritual life, our physical life, uh, our, the life of our liberties, and the life of our country, in the case of the military. And uh, they all have special training, right, and certification. Uh, and all of those, really, when you think about what are you looking for if you're really sick, do I want a competent doctor or do I want a talented doctor? If I'm in some kind of big legal jeopardy, do I want a competent lawyer or a talented lawyer? In every case, you want talent. Hmm. Well, and when it comes to the life of our country and uh, leading young adults whose lives we're asking, you know, uh, them to trust us with, uh, I think we want talent. And uh, so that was where we came out on talent and the idea that we really wanted to get to know our officers much better and our soldiers, uh, get to know uh, their passions, their gifts, uh, their limitations, and do our very best to put them where they can thrive and do their very best for their, the people they lead and ultimately for our country. And we thought that would be strategic and that our adversaries, uh, if they're terrorists, couldn't hope to put that kind of data in a network, a computer network, right? Because if we got in there, it'd be the end of them. Uh, and those that run totalitarian countries, uh, whether they're, you know, uh, former Soviet Union kind of countries or emerging powers in Asia, uh, their culture doesn't support it. Uh, America, the grease that makes America work is trust. You know, you look at eBay. Uh, you're doing business with people you never met, right? Uh, banking. Who, who really touches dollar bills anymore? It's all electronic, right? Sure. So trust is a foundational element of our country. If we could get our officers to trust us, to share their passions, you know, what are they reading? Uh, what are they writing? Uh, what do they get excited about, right, with us? Um, and we could exchange that trust with a better opportunity to gain access to assignments they would value that they think align with their career aspirations and uh, their goal of being lifetime employable, right? Um, that that trust would exist and we could get them to share and we would compensate them through better access to better assignments in terms of what they value. Uh, we could build a talent management system that would then do one other thing for us, which actually let us know what we need. Uh, in a command and control environment, it's very difficult to really know what you need. And the way we get at it is committees or meetings in the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet, uh, as we watched the first iteration here of the uh, AIM 2.0 unfold, the talent Which is management the, system. The talent management system that essentially right. takes what are they knowledge, skills, and behaviors, and, behaviors. Right. Sure. and preferences. And preferences. Uh, 14,000 officers, I think, thereabouts, maybe 17,000 right now are in that system. For the uh, next PCS cycle. For the next PCS cycle, which will unfold, I think, this spring, summer. Mm -hmm. uh, that, this market window we're in right now closes around Thanksgiving time. 
and what we're seeing is um, officers were fairly quick um, to begin identifying their pre preferences and to document these attributes we're so interested in, right? It's on the back of their ORB. It could be uh, I'm standing up a new sales organization and marketing organization in Chicago, and that's the only place I'm looking is the backside of ORBs to pick officers. And it could be something like I sold Cutco knives to get through college. Okay, well, here's some vicious guy who also knows something about sales and how to close a deal, right? And that's kind of interesting, not something you normally find on the front of an ORB. Um, and uh, so this information on the back ORB is, is there. Officers have provided it. Uh, and they're providing it because they expect us to use that information so that they can uh, gain access to a job they want somewhere in the Army. Uh, what's coming online slower is the unit part. Units are not used to having to compete for officers. Mm -hmm. It was something they were just provided. Well, when I have to actually work to get something, I treat it a little differently than if it just shows up. So that's a good thing right there, sure. right? Because uh, heretofore, the Army provided, and uh, you know, the units sort of just got access to people without much expenditure. In the civilian sector, I can tell you, it's a big effort to get the right people in your organization. Uh, part two, uh, the organizations are now looking at officers in terms of what do they bring to the table, and that ought to be uh, causing commanders to ask questions like, well, who's already at the table? Mm -hmm. Where are my organizational gaps? How could this officer help fill those gaps? Uh, how would he strengthen the team? Uh, that sort of discussion really never came into, the, into play under the old system. And is the goal to have that, that discussion as a commander and a staff say or sitting around a table that they're taking a little bit more comprehensive view of these officers rather than just their PT scores right. and, That's and right. previous OERs? That's the goal. Okay. And, uh, and the thoughtful ones will be doing that, right? Uh, and and there will be some that aren't doing it. Um, but, but they'll see pretty quickly, I think, that the value of doing it. Sure. And, uh, and to me, it's a huge OPD opportunity, officer professional development opportunity. In that you know, we, we do hear a bit about, well, it's a lot of work. Well, yeah, hiring good people is a lot of work, mm -hmm. but it's got a lot of value too, right? I mean, who do you want in your culture? Who do you want in your organization? How do you want them to uh, collaborate, right, and, and perform? Uh, and I could easily envision as a battalion commander, this would be a great o OPD tool. I would, I would look at the vacancies I've got. I would look at my staff and my uh, commanders and say, okay, I would like you to go out and think first. Uh, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What do we need? Then I'd like to look at the people that are applying to us uh, see if that's the group we need. If it, if it looks great, that's good. But I'd also like you to begin communicating more broadly about our opportunities here, uh, and then come back to me with, you know, a prioritized list of people we ought to be looking at, and and how we ought to approach them. With what message should we send them? Uh, and that would begin causing all my officers to start thinking about, you know, these people are valued, right? Uh, America sent them to us, but they're not free. Mm -hmm. They cost a fortune to get, uh, and they're very valuable to to the army and to their loved ones. Uh, let's start thinking about what role they're going to play here, and then let's make our approach and ask them. And I can tell you from experience, um, for, you know, you might have forts. Let's pick one, uh, Fort Polk, right? It may have an image in the Army that it's not the most desirable place to go. <laughs> but if I'm a captain in the Army, I'm looking for a command, and a battalion commander reaches out to me from Fort Polk and says, we've looked at you, and we've looked at you carefully. We think you'd be a great member of our team. We'd like you to join us. And I can talk to you about when the command queue, will, what the command queue looks like, and what would come after that. I'm going to get pretty interested in Fort Polk. Such a different experience than most most right. captains say looking at a PCS right, right. now. Right. Right. And and you also have. That means that if if this this can become, you know, potentially revolutionary, because then you have captains that are invested in the system from that level. So when they take battalion command, they're better at it. Yep. And they know how to better value the people the army's provided them. Right. No, they just don't like, people aren't disposable. They're not interchangeable parts. Sure. Uh, 
we got to figure out how to help each of them succeed uh, as opposed to, you know, we expect the done deal to be delivered on our doorstep and we don't have to do any work. Uh, much different approach. Um, and, uh, and what we're learning is the Army didn't really know its requirements. So while the officers have done a great job of coming online with their preferences and providing the data that one would find useful to pick them, our units are taking much longer uh, to A, fill out a job description, and B, much longer to fill out uh, the attributes they're looking for. That tells me they didn't really know, mm -hmm. right? Uh, what job do I want them to do? That's, that's not as hard as what kind of attributes would this person have, right? Uh, that's harder because I never had to worry about it before and I never really had to think about it before. And as they do that, uh, we're going to find out, you know, some are getting it right, some are getting it wrong. Uh, officers are going to be matched up with these units. Um, we'll look at the attributes of the officers that do well. We'll look at what the unit asked for. We'll be able to see the disconnects. And the Army will get great insight on what the Army really needs. And we can feed that back into the accession sources. So, hey, we're really short of officers that have these attributes. Okay, well, where did the ones we've got come from? Let's go back there and make sure we get more. Uh, the places we're not getting many from, let's rejigger those. Uh, is this a trained attribute or one that's sort of innate and we have to acquire it? If it's trained, that's a trade mission. We need to change the training base. Um, if it's acquired, we need to talk to West Point and Cadet Command and OCS about how do we acquire it. And we need to talk to our marketing folks about this is a, a need we can't fill right now. Uh, and so it really starts driving the Army uh, to be much more agile in terms of meeting real needs that units identify in real time. Uh, and then uh, that, that obviously changes the way we do business here. It goes from command and control to much more market-driven. That's why we call this a market. Markets tell you what's short all the time, right? Sure. The price is high. If the price is low, it's in surplus. If the price is high, it's, it's scarce. Uh, the other thing we're going to get out of this is uh, the ownership economy. The Army grew up in the ownership economy. And when we go to war, we bring everything. Uh, you know, I think on Black Hawk Down there was a line, you know, bring everything that kills, right? Uh, you don't want to leave anything behind because you may get stuck overnight, and now you need water and night vision goggles and all that. Uh, the world of ownership is pretty expensive. I'd much rather live in the world of access. And so if I'm a battalion commander, I don't actually have to own the officer and have him assigned to me to get access to the things he could do for me. So I can envision you could reach in here as a as an organization, maybe it's Corps of Engineers, maybe it's cyber, somebody with a little different kind of mission, a little different kind of problem, and uh, reach out to officer and say, could you come TDY? Or could you collaborate virtually with us, uh, much as you, you do at West Point, right? You've got all the centers that reach out and support the Army. Uh, you're not assigned to them, but you bring your talents and your capabilities to bear against Army problems, whether it's the Office of Economic Manpower Analysis or the Cyber Center. Uh, that makes us much more agile. Then we don't have to own everything and take everything with us, but we can get act it, at it when we need it, if it's in the world of, you know, like intellectual capital, uh, some, some expertise. Will there be uh, a way for that? Because that does sound fascinating. Um, will there be a way for that to be captured? Because I, I, can, I can envision a scenario um, where you have a, you know, a company commander or a battalion staff officer who, who gets invited to, he said, hey, you've got the right skills mm -hmm. and attributes to help. Can you come TDY for three weeks? And then maybe once again, you know, next right. year for three weeks. The, the officer, the battalion commander who does own that officer, so to speak, may not have, their, their, their interests might not be aligned. He, and so that might not be reflected on, on right. that young captain's OER. Will there be a mechanism for that to also go in so that the next time there's an yeah. assignment cycle? That's the missing piece, right? Sure. So uh, let's suppose you've got a, you know, an enterprise-focused leader who says, yeah, I'll take you out of hide for a couple of weeks. You can go over there, uh, and then I'll reflect it in your OER. Mm -hmm. uh, that could happen. Uh, 
Um, what, what I think we ought to be headed towards, though, is uh, if it does happen that the, the officer that you're working for at distance, right, the one who's borrowing you, can also provide input, right? So we need a, a mechanism for the guy that owns you and the guy that's borrowing you to be able to provide insight to the Army on how you contributed. Sure. Uh, and then if it's TD, if it's, you know, virtual, you're doing it at night, you know, we definitely need a mechanism there for, the, for that to happen because mm-hmm. you could be doing that, you know, and it, it's no skin off your commanders because it's on the weekend or it's in the evening when you could have been doing something else, right? Right. Uh, and those, those collaborations could be pretty powerful, and they could also set you up for the next job, right? I mean, if you want to position yourself, this is a great leader out here. I'd love to work for him. I get a chance to collaborate virtually or on a temporary basis. Uh, and downstream, I'm now in his network of people he knows to turn to. Uh, and then an assignment comes open. Uh, I'm in a good position to go get that assignment. It does sound a lot more like the private sector than the Army that most people know, I right. think, which is, um, which is the goal, um, which is fantastic. Much more nimble. Uh, sure. And, you know, the private sector is all about extracting as much value as they can uh, from their workforce. Uh, and in exchange, the workforce is very ex- interested in gaining new capabilities and new skills that make them more employable, right? Uh, so the Army could be in the same world. And the beauty of it is the Chinese or whoever, are they going to do this? It be very tough culturally. I sure. mean, there are countries now in the world where if you spit on the sidewalk, you know, you lose points. If you chew gum and throw it on the ground, you lose points. Mm-hmm. You can't get on a plane. You can't get medical care. Are you going to share with that government, you know, a lot more data about yourself? Probably sure. not, right. right? So can we shift gears a little bit to... We talked a little bit about getting the right people, getting quality people, uh, recruitment. You talked about uh, employability and that, that, you know, people who, are, who might consider the Army are less interested in employment than employability as, as things have changed culturally, uh, certainly in this country, in this economy. In some ways, that means that you have to show them that, hey, you sign up for three years or five years or whatever it is, that you're going you're gonna to leave with a skill set that's going to make you marketable mm-hmm. outside of the Army. Implicit in that is that a lot of those people are going to leave the army. Um, that's okay to some extent because we need a lot more lieutenants than we need lieutenant colonels, and a lot more privates than we need, you know, E sevens and first sergeants. Um, how do you get? How do you strike that balance? Well, I, I guess I start with first. Every one of them is an American, and uh, the army has obviously its primary role of defending our country, right? Um, but if along the way we can make Americans better right, through experiences and opportunities that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And then they return to America, better educated, better trained, better prepared to dominate the challenges they're going to face. we got a better America. Uh, and without a better America, there isn't going to be much of a better army. Uh, and so the two are joined to the hip, better America, better army. Uh, the strength of one feeds the strength of the other. So any investment we make in a, in a person that joins us, to me, is a, is a positive for the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously we want to keep the folks that have the ability to contribute over the long haul. We want to keep them as long as we can, uh, but we want to return all of them back to the country in better condition than we found them, either through education, training, or uh, the confidence that they bring back, you know, uh, to that they can dominate challenges that life presents. Um, and then within the talent management system, you know, our goal would be to identify, you know, what do we need out here in the future? Who in this rising generation can meet that need? And how do we help them navigate the distance to be prepared to meet that next challenge, right? And then make sure we can get them in the right spot at the right time. Uh, And that right spot might be in the reserves, it might be in the National Guard, it might be in our civilian workforce. Uh, We're a man three strong, right? It's not all active duty. And so there's plenty of ways to serve. So right now we have no way to offboard an officer or a soldier 
from uh, active component into a civilian job. They have to leave and then sort of re-enter, and there's nothing strategic about it. Uh, same same for guard and reserve. Very tough to navigate that distance. Um, we could be much more strategic if you're indicating you're going to leave active service. We could open up the portal so the guard or reserve can see, you know, your talent management information, and commanders over there could be making an approach about, hey, if you're coming to our state, uh, here's the benefits our state provides, and oh, by the way, here's a position in our guard or reserve component you could serve. Uh, the, the civilian side of the Army could do the same thing. Right now that's not happening. And so we, we develop a lot of folks, and then if you're not active, you're kind of gone. Uh, is that a longer-term objective to try to create this sort of yep. – to, to interlink these different components? That's, right. that's why the people strategy was so important, to now tie together active, guard, reserve, civilian in a cohesive framework. Uh, and really, on that framework, overlay it on some things we know are very important, like family, right, quality of life issues. Mm -hmm. uh, General Conville's uh, highlighted several of those, right? Uh, and, and some that are a little more subtle that aren't highlighted are like the school systems. Uh, spouse employment's way up the list, right? Uh, most households now operate off of two incomes to some degree. Uh, if you want your kid to go to a, a great college, you know, you know, somewhere in there, money's in the equation, and you got to have the money. And so you start getting ready that, and, and many families do it through two incomes. Uh, but to get the kid ready for college, you also need a good school system, right? And so the Army doesn't really run schools, but we have an enduring interest in them. Mm -hmm. And so as we decide where we'd put our forces in the next round of adjustments, right? The weapons will take us in a certain direction to some degree, so the people's strategy ought to inform the weapons. If, uh, if to be competent on that weapon, you always have to be on it as opposed to synthetic training environment where you can do a lot of it virtually, right? And then go somewhere else and get on the weapon when you gotta get on it. Uh, that lets us open up the Army to a lot of different stationing options, whether right. it could be Indianapolis or medium, small size cities where you've got the ability, you know, to, to rely on the local cultural uh, artifacts, uh, local religious system, right? We don't have to build the churches, the, the stores, the theaters, sure. and we can put more of our resources in the core Army activities, and there's more opportunities for spouse employment and the good school system, right? Um, Which that's I can also all in the, see in the mix. I can also see that, um, you know, even though we have, you know, these series of, of BRAC-based realignment mm -hmm. closure, the, the footprint largely stays the same. It's mostly in the south with a couple of outliers mm -hmm. there. Um, if you started, if, if there was a means of doing that and putting, say, like, you know, uh, an installation in mm -hmm. or near Indianapolis, that also exposes a lot of people in Indianapolis to the military, That's right. which means that recruitment becomes it's easier enhanced. a generation down right. the road. And, and I believe that to the core because you know, when we look at who joins the Army and who has the, the strongest positive views of the Army, it's kids of Army. Yep. And who would know us better than our kids, right? Uh, and the problem we have is we're strangers to a lot of folks. And so being uh, spread across the country a little more widely and communities where there are more Americans, uh, it can't be anything but a good thing, sure. right? And, and I can picture our forces doing that. MDO, we're going to have a lot of forces that are not involved in, in like, heavy metal, right? Um, you're going to have cyber. You're going to have EW. You're going to have information warfare types of folks. Those, those kind of people could be almost anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, if you got heavy metal, sure, we're going to need to be in some places with a lot of land. Uh, but the more we can create options for the Army in terms of stationing uh, and that the people strategy hangs together with the, moder the equipment modernization plans, uh, the better the options will be that confront the secretaries and chiefs down the road. Well, so we've talked a little bit, um, we've talked a lot, I guess, about kind of the manpower piece um, of, of your role. 
I want to shift for kind of maybe a last question or two to the reserve affairs piece of it. Um, one of the things as a, as a reserve officer myself, one of the things that has kind of struck me is that I knew that uh, the Army Reserve has historically been a strategic reserve. Um, during the Cold War, that made a lot of sense. If we needed to grow quickly, uh, that was a really good way to do it. Uh, the operational tempo of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, overseas contingency operations, meant you had a lot of reserve and National Guard units deploying pretty regularly. Um, it, in many ways, without necessarily saying it, it became an operational reserve. Uh, we're kind of at an inflection point now, as you know, we've drawn down in Iraq, we're drawing down, continue to draw down in Afghanistan. Um, we maybe have the breathing space to make a deliberate decision about the, the reserve component. What's your sense of, 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 of the reserve components in the future, whether or not they are, they're better positioned to be a strategic reserve or an operational reserve? Uh, I would be a good G357 question. Sure. So from where I sit, um, I think uh, we rely on them very heavily. Um, strategic uh, sounds neat, uh, but I don't think we're going to get that kind of warning. Um, the world seems to be moving very fast, in fact, accelerating in the rate of change. Uh, the rate at which av potential adversaries are closing the gap, uh, the rate at which the world's kind of shrinking. I mean, cyber, I think we're constantly in, in the contact layer, if, if not beyond that right now, in the cyber domain. Right. Uh, and young people are the ones making the calls. I mean, it's not going to the White House in many cases. Um, you're going to get that with EW and information warfare. Uh, and many of these uh, skills really lend themselves much better to the reserve and guard than they do the active component, right? I mean, I could have a fellow who's, or a young lady working over at IBM who is working cyber issues at IBM in support of some bank somewhere. And when they're not doing that, they're working for us. Mm -hmm. And IBM will spend uh, probably 90 cents on our, on a, of the dollar that'll get spent, and we'll spend 10 cents on keeping that person at the cutting edge. And then when we need them, they're available to us or to the governor through the guard. Uh, you've seen these attacks on cities where their data gets held hostage, school systems. I mean, that's a great way to hurt an open society, right? So the role of the guard is changing very rapidly, uh, the reserves too. And so I think uh, they're going to be folks that are here with us in real time. And uh, we're going to need them kind of with us every step of the way. And the idea that they'd be sort of held back in a strategic situation, I don't picture that, frankly. Uh, in many cases, they have unique skills the active component doesn't have, or they have the depth we need. Uh, we may have onesie twosies in the active, and they've got the, the depth, uh, and we'll need it quickly if we need it. And uh, we're going to call on it uh, in an operational fashion. So I think uh, the, the Guard and Reserve are very much uh, in pace with the, the active component in terms of meeting the nation's need. How are we doing uh, right now in terms of, of tapping into those talent pools of people who have gotten education and training yeah. in the private sector, work in the private sector, and bring them into the fold through the reserve component? I think we're scratching the surface, which is good news, right? I mean, if we're scratching the surface, uh, think about what we're going to be able to do when we bring them into the talent management system, uh, provide opportunities for people to move back and forth, uh, un un uh, sort of unmask all the terrific things these folks know that the Army didn't even know they knew. Uh, whether it's in, you know, power production, if we have uh, some kind of an event that, you know, people worry about with the, the power supply, mm -hmm. right, or, uh, God forbid, some kind of disease, or, you know, cyber. I mean, on and on and on. These people bring great gifts to the table. We saw it during the, the war, um, and it kind of got revealed to the Army that there's a lot over there that we didn't even know existed. Uh, so I think talent management is going to be a huge uh, plus for the Guard, Reserve, and Active Army and the country. So... I, I think this will probably be my last question, but there are 
a lot of men and women out there, uh, as you said, active duty, reserve, and civilians who have have an interest in these things. The stuff your office is doing is having an impact, and 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 will have an impact on their careers and their lives. We've talked about a lot, but probably the thing that, if it isn't of the most interest to our listeners, is certainly up there. Uh, that's the new talent management system. So for for that community. Uh, say army officers who are going to be seeing this pretty dramatic change. Do you have anything you would like to say to them? Uh, you know, I'd encourage them to to bear with us here. Well, you know, this is a new system coming online. Uh, it's been in the works now uh, longer than most people un- un- know, um, but it's really gained momentum with the chief and the secretary. Uh, and the time is ripe. Uh, the technology is now here. We understand how to do it. Uh, what we're trying to do is navigate the distance, though, from a lot of inherited policy and practice, which, you know, is deep in our culture, to a new way of doing business. And, and so the first cus- uh, question you're going to bang into are like, you know, what's wrong with what we got? Well, something doesn't have to be wrong with what you've got to know there's something you need to do to be ready for the future. Corporations do that every day, right? They're, they're always working on the next product line. Mm-hmm. We see what's on the horizon. We've got some adversaries coming uh, who can outspend us, who have closed the technological gap, uh, who have very large populations and are local to areas that they want to dominate. Uh, we're going to have to come from distance. We're going to have to come from a position w- that we've never had where the enemy can outspend us. Uh, and what we're going to have to bring is America. And the best part of America is Americans in our culture that's based on trust and trust between the RME and its, and its members that lets us unleash their gifts in ways that our enemies aren't going to be able to do in their own country. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to get ready for something we know is coming, not sit on our on our haunches here with something we know worked in the past. Well, sir, thank you very much. I think we're about out of time. The um, you've, you've given listeners, I think, a lot to think about. And, and it's a lot that we have a lot of listeners, uh, especially in in the Army, that have an appetite for this kind of information because they see change and they want they want to understand it and and how to make the most of the new system. So thank you very much. Thanks. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, hopefully you're already subscribed to the podcast. If not, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.